0: Good morning, welcome. I'm holding in my hand some grapes here. Actually, a few less grapes than when I started because this is about my fourth take on this. Uh, Why do I have grapes? Well, I have grapes because I love grapes. They taste really good, fortifying me for this message here. But we also have a story about a vineyard today. It's a story about Naboth. Ahab, Jezebel, Elijah comes into this story. Uh, It's about greed. It's about uh, righteousness, justice. There's a whole lot of themes that come together in this story. It's a pretty well-known story, and I I hope that you've read it this morning. I'm not going to read it for you on the video. So if you haven't read it, pause it, go back and read this. Like I say, it's a fairly well-known story, uh, different than 1 Kings chapter 20. But imagine if it was the first story that you ever read with the Bible. That was the case for a young man from India, the country India. Christopher Wright, who is an Old Testament scholar from the UK, uh, tells this story of one time speaking in a conference and meeting this uh, gentleman from India, uh, who had grown up in one of the backward and oppressed groups in India, uh, part of a community that system, systemically exploited, treated with contempt, injustice, oftentimes violence. The effect on, on this young man was to fill him with a burning desire to rise above that station in order to be able to turn the tables on those who oppressed him and his community. So he threw himself into his education, as people often do. He went to college committed to revolutionary ideals and to the ideology of Marxism. His goal was to achieve the qualifications needed to gain some kind of power and thus the means to do something to effect his justice and revenge. He was contacted in his early days at university by some Christian college students and was given a Bible, which he wasn't all that interested in. But he decided to read it uh, just to be polite, though really he had no respect at all for Christians. Now, it just so happens, and you can probably see this coming, that the first story that he read in the Bible, the first story that he read in the Bible was First Kings 21, the story of Naboth, Ahab, Jezebel, Elijah, and the effect on him was amazing. He was astonished to find that this was a story about themes he was very familiar with: greed, uh, for land, abuse of power, corruption of the courts, violence against the poor. But was so, what was so amazing to him was the fact that God took the victim's side. He took Nabu's side. And not only that, but he accused the people in power, Ahab and Jezebel, of wrongdoing, and he took vengeance against them. Here was a God that this man met in the pages of 1 Kings 21 of real justice, a God who identified the villains, who took real action against them. I never knew such a God existed, this man exclaimed. He read on through the rest of the Old Testament history, and he found that his first impression was confirmed. God constantly was taking the side of the oppressed and was taking direct action against their enemies. Here was a God he could respect. He was a God he even felt attracted to, even though he didn't know him as of yet. And I want to take this uh, idea that we, we meet... God in this story, and his his attributes, his character, the things that make God tick, and 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 assume that just as it was attractive to this young man from India, whose first introduction to God was through this story, it too, uh, or he too, might be attractive to us as we walk through this particular story. And I want to do it by uh, looking at three different characters, first Ahab, second Naboth, and then thirdly, God himself and how he acts in this story. And I want to observe with you, first of all, that Ahab is sold out. He's sold out to his own ends, he's sold out to rebellion against Yahweh. He's sold out to a worldview that is contra the, the worldview that God has given him in the Hebrew Scriptures. How do we see that? Well, you, you see that he sold out in verse 20. Elijah comes to him and he says, I found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil, of the lord and this really goes back picking up where we ended last week remember last week at the end of chapter 20 Ahab is rebuked by an unnamed prophet for his failure to take vengeance on Yahweh's enemies, in particular, Ben-Hadad. And and Ahab doesn't respond to that rebuke well. It tells us in verse 43 that he went to his house vexed and sullen. He was pouting. We see the same attitude in in verse 4 when he doesn't get the... Uh, the vineyard from Nahab. He goes into his house uh, vexed and sullen he he wouldn 't eat his food he he 's basically pouting he 's petulant. You see, God has been pursuing Ahab in so many ways from chapter seventeen, when Elijah first confronts him about the drought, chapter eighteen, when he meets God on Mount Carmel in all of his power, and God says to him and to all the people that you may know that I am Yahweh again in in verse. Uh, in in chapter 20, twice he comes to him and delivers him from the Syrians, even though Ahab didn't uh, deserve it. In order that you might know that I am the Lord, God has continually, so patiently, so lovingly been pursuing Ahab and will even in this particular chapter. But Ahab, he's centered on himself and, and he pouts and he's vexed and he's sullen. And when he does that, uh, like we see in chapter 20, he's seeking to fill that void through uh, through material possessions. We we see that here. He wants this vineyard. Uh, Naboth has this place next to the the palace that Ahab sets up in Jezreel, which wasn't his original capital, by the way. His original capital is Samaria, but Jezreel seems to be the place where. Uh, Jezebel has set up so Ahab when he's upset doesn't turn to the Lord uh, but he turns to Jezebel he turns to his land he sees this land next to his palace there and says I want that too and when he doesn't get it he pouts and I realize how much I'm like Ahab because when I am confronted uh, particularly if I'm guilty Um, You know, it's interesting in in verse 20, Elijah comes to Ahab and Ahab says to him, Have you found me, O my enemy? Elijah is not Ahab's enemy. Uh, Elijah is coming in order to give Ahab a portal back to Yahweh to invite him to repent, to turn to him, to find mercy. But this is all Ahab can see. And the he only senses that God is against him. He doesn't see the mercy that God is bringing to him. And I am just that way. If I've been repuked, but I am, you know, all up in my feelings and feeling myself and like Ahab, vexed, sullen, petulant, pouty, all of these different things, I want to find other things to comfort me rather than turning to Yahweh. I want to turn to my possessions. I want to read a novel just to escape from that particular time, pour myself into sports or whatever. Or even, uh, these are places where oftentimes we turn to illicit things. We turn to alcohol or or drugs or or uh, illicit sexuality all of these different things because we don't want to do the very thing that god is inviting us to do repent return to him and find grace in his worldview and you see as this carries out and it really is a battle of worldviews because ahab is the king of israel and he should know uh that the land belongs to God, first of all, and then is given on stewardship to various Israelite families and tribes. And so no one has the right to buy and acquire land uh, in that system like he is suggesting. So even though he offers Naboth a sweet deal and and Naboth could have bettered himself, a better vineyard, money, cash, whatever, Naboth said, no, that's not the way we do things in Israel. Uh, but but Ahab is not content with that. And, and Jezebel certainly doesn't see things that way. She is the daughter of a Phoenician king. And she says to Ahab, what, what kind of king are you? If you're the king, you own it all. <clears throat> of course, again, this is not what an Israelite king is about. If they are a king, they are God's vice regent. God is the supreme. We are the ones who carry out his will. We're his stewards, but not for Jezebel. And that's why this is a battle of worldviews, the worldviews uh, of of self, of secularism, of false gods versus uh, the worldview that really goes all the way back to Genesis, where we see that God is the supreme king. We are the ones that are made in his image, both with the responsibility of being his stewards, as well as with the respectability that comes from bearing the image of God. And what's so sad about this here is that Naboth doesn't respect any of that. He doesn't respect his call as the steward of God. He doesn't respect Naboth's life, uh, certainly as one who bears the image of God. Now, There is a sense in which Ahab here lets Jezebel do her thing. Um, Maybe he is looking for some plausible deniability. I didn't actually kill him. I didn't actually throw the stones. God, of course, doesn't see that way. Uh, In verse 19, uh, he says to Elijah, go and tell Ahab, have you killed and also taken possession? God holds Ahab responsible for this. Uh, illicit and ungodly system that he supports, where Jezebel can write letters in his name. Jezebel can bring on these worthless prophet or these worthless men who give a false testimony against Naboth, and, and she does this all, you know, in a way that looks sort of good. It's it's during a fast. She sort of calls a prayer meeting. And then accuses Naboth, gives him a seat of honor at the head of the table, and, and then she uh, pulls the rug out from under him, as it were, and falsely accuses him, and Naboth is murdered. And this is what we see. We see uh, worldviews that oppose one another. And, and this is the question that we have to ask ourselves. Like, where are we getting our information and and what is guiding us in terms of our own decision making and our own worldview? Are we heeding the invitations from Yahweh to turn to be humble before him to continue to see the world and ourselves in it in our fellow human beings through his glasses through the order that he has put? in his world or are we going along with principalities and powers and ideologies that say human beings are at the center of this world and therefore we can do whatever we want we don't have to worry about the environment because we are the centers and so whatever uh, whatever pleases us whatever benefits us that we can go ahead and do this. You know, some of it is even the symbolism that is here. It's interesting. Ahab wants this for a vegetable garden. There's only one other place in the scriptures. It's Deuteronomy eleven, twelve, where where this term vegetable garden comes up and it's talking about when Israel was in Egypt, uh, you were like a garden of vegetables. Uh, It's a very derogatory term compared to a vineyard throughout the scriptures. God compares his people to a vineyard. We see it in Isaiah. We see it in Jeremiah. See it even in the New Testament. God, Jesus says this about uh, his church, his people. He says, I am the vine. You are the branches. Abide in me. And, and, And God is saying there's there's two ways here. You can either go the way of a vegetable garden, a worldview that is opposed to me, or you can rest in my way. You can rest in my care. You can be this beautiful vineyard, uh, bursting forth into into a great harvest of life and of joy. All of these things—a really beautiful vintage of grapes. The second thing I want us to note here is that the sort of the results of what happens when we refuse to see the world in which God has made it or in the way that God has made the world and we certainly see that in the in the person of Naboth Naboth is stoned down if if Isaiah is, or I'm sorry, Isaiah, where did that come from? If Ahab is sold out to this uh, conflicting or competing worldview, uh, Naboth is the one who's caught in the crossfire. Naboth is seeking to do what is right. We don't know much about Naboth. Uh, we're, we're given a pretty flat picture of him here, uh, but he is seeking to do what is right. And he says to Ahab, I won't sell you the vineyard. Um, as a result, uh, the 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 machine kicks into gear and plows him down, and we're told later on in Second Kings chapter nine, it is I believe maybe Second Kings chapter seven that Naboth's sons as well, who would stand to inherit if Naboth were dead, they too were killed. So these folks become the victims of the political machine that is set up against Yahweh, headed by Ahab, headed by Jezebel. Uh, They are the victims. They are the ones that are caught in the crossfire. And this is always the case. When when we seek to have a worldview, no matter what it is, uh, that is contrary to the one that, that God has set up, We find that innocent people, uh, oftentimes righteous people, are persecuted, suffered, killed, murdered, all sorts of things. We we have all kinds of examples of this in, in our society, which, again, we you know in america we oftentimes have seen ourselves as a christian society and and we can certainly recognize that many of the people who founded our country had some christian values in their minds we see them in things like the declaration of independence the constitution these types of things however uh, we have to recognize that we are increasingly secular, and even going back to those founding fathers, this this was not a theonomy in the same way that Israel was a theonomy. It never has been, and it certainly isn't right now. And so what we see as, as secularism rises, as people put themselves at the center and, and put you know, God more and more on the fringes of our minds, uh, even just this boxed off sort of thing. We have him for our religious moments, but he doesn't affect the way that we make money. He doesn't affect uh, the entertainment that he has, that we have, it doesn't affect our sexuality, it doesn't affect the way that we view other people. It We suffer and, and we see that. We've been reminded of that a, again this week. And I know some of you have seen George Floyd and and the situation in Minnesota, and and the the tragic way in which this man lost his life in a way that wasn't necessary, and it just gets added to to so many other ways in which we we see the issues of race being played out in America, and. and uh, we we recognize this in our own hearts. I, I certainly do, um, and and we we repent of this. But it's so many it's so many ways. We we see this with abortion, and and how many nameless children have lost their lives in in the service of convenience, in the service of of maybe power or finances or whatever the reasons are that we felt that we couldn't bring this child into the world. It's always the, the innocent who suffer. It's when we don't think about what it means to be made in the image of God, that life can end before it even gets started. We think about refugees roaming this world uh, with no place to go. Uh, we, we think about so many ways in which these ideologies set up against God cause folks to bear the, the marks of, you know, in a very similar way to Naboth, the bearing the marks of a system. So where do we go with this? I want to suggest to you uh, two things. The first thing is this. Um, there are definitely those who are caught in the crossfire of injustice of a failure to reckon with the image of god in man and while i don't have all the answers to to why this happens and i don't have all the answers in terms of of um of where do, we, where do we even go with this. One of the things that we can see is that God is willing to identify with us in this way. If you remember back to the opening illustration of the man from India, he saw that in, in the Old Testament, that God is the God who sees the oppressed, who sees the, the downtrodden, the broken. But we see this in the New Testament as well because who is Jesus? Jesus is the one who is um, is marked with the sinners. He is the one who is put in the dock with the criminals. He is the one who is falsely accused. In fact, uh, we see this so clearly here that the kangaroo court that plays out In Jezebel's day, under her direction, which Naboth is falsely accused, is very similar to the kangaroo court where two witnesses come against Jesus in Matthew chapter 24. 26 uh, and and bring false accusations against him well we don't have all the answers to why and how God is working things out in his world um, and this is problematic I know for many people like if God is a God of justice why doesn't he fix it right now while I don't have the answers for that I can say that he identifies and he enters in That Jesus himself, as the God-man, stood in the dock, falsely accused, was put to death. His life, given so little value, his human life, that he was hung on a Roman cross. A Roman cross that basically says, you are the excrement of humanity. uh, Left out, exposed uh, to die. But Jesus went that route, and he identified with us. And it's such a comforting thing. Even in the midst of not understanding all of the answers, it's such a comforting thing to know that God goes there. And this is really where I think there is so much in this chapter that speaks to the the surplus of righteousness, the character of God that we see. God does see. Even in this chapter, it's really interesting that uh, Naboth, uh, several times here, even after he's dead, in the verses that immediately follow, verses uh, 17... Uh, and following, uh, his name is mentioned so many times. Uh, he is in the vineyard of Naboth. Uh, the dogs will lick up the blood of Naboth. Shall dogs lick your own blood? And he, and he just mentions his name. Actually, there's six times after Naboth is actually dead that that God that God mentions his name. And I think what we realize from this is that he is indeed a God who sees. One writer puts it this way, Naboth bites the dust as a helpless victim. Yet Yahweh is the God who sees all of his hapless Naboths and their lifeless uh, forms amidst the stones, the very stones of injustice. Naboth might be dead, but he is not to Yahweh. And again, we see this throughout the Old Testament. Remember back to Hagar, who in Deuter or I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 16, verse 13, is off in this desert, she and Ishmael ready to die. She thinks Abraham hates her. Uh, she knows that Sarah hates her. She doesn't she feels alone, like nobody is recognizing her, but God finds her. And she says, then, "You are truly Elroy. You are the God who sees." And this is the testimony of God all the way throughout. So no matter who you are, no matter how small you might feel, no matter how insignificant you might see yourself in terms of the broad contours of the world, he is a God who sees his people and he will not forget. And that is great comfort. I think of George Floyd and I think of... um, Ahmad Aubrey. I think of Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown and all of the folks over the 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 recent years who have been in the media who have lost their lives uh, without a fair trial, um, oftentimes at the hands of those who should be protecting them. I think about those hundreds of thousands, millions of humans, tiny humans that have been aborted over the years, and my heart grieves, but it is also encouraged to know that God is Elroy. He is the God who sees, and he knows every one of their names, even if they were never given a name. He knows their DNA. He knows their heart. He knows them, and that is a wonderful thing to know about our God. Secondly, we we note here that justice is meted out. You see here that The very same dogs that lick up the blood of Naboth, verse 19, shall lick up the blood of Ahab and of Jezebel and of Ahab's family. Uh, Once again, we commented on that last week. It's, It's sometimes, depending on your life situation, Uh, we we don't often think about that. There are many oppressed people throughout the world. Think about how this connected with a young man from India. Think about how it connects with maybe African Americans who have had a very different experience than I have in this particular uh, society. Think about how it might connect to those who live in North Korea underneath a, a an unjust system, uh, the fact of God's justice is something that, that we should leap towards, something that we should be attracted to, uh, because he is the God of justice. And, and remember, like we said last week, and like we point out very much, when we come to the cross, we, we certainly see God's mercy he died he laid down his life for us but what we're saying in that is that he underwent the justice of god for us he underwent the justice that we deserved uh he underwent that in his body and that was his mercy for us and that's really the last thing that i want to uh to talk about um Ahab's repentance, verses 25 uh, and on. We're reminded there was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, who Jezebel, his wife, uh, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the land of Israel. So it's interesting. We're given this little parenthetical in 25 and 26. Uh, And then we come to verse 27, when Ahab did hear the words of judgment, uh, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh, and he fasted uh, and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And then the word of the Lord came to Elijah and said, have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days. And I will bring the disaster, uh, but in his son's days, I will bring the disaster upon his house. What do we see here? Did Ahab really repent? I don't know. Um, Maybe not fully. Uh, I think that there is some connection here between David and Bathsheba, David's sin, With Bathsheba, very similar, the way he takes something that belongs to his neighbor, the same way that Ahab takes something that belongs to his neighbor. This follows on uh, a very similar prophetic pronouncement, similar to the one that David and uh, Nathan had. Thou art the man, you see very much that in the unnamed prophet. But when you compare Ahab's repentance with David's repentance, there is no comparison. David truly repents. He says, against you and you alone have I sinned and, and done what is evil in your sight. Therefore, I am not worthy of your mercy. That is what David says in Psalm 51. Ahab, it seems like, is more stung by the prophet or, or by the prophecy against him. He's more stung by... The consequence of his sin. We, we see that in, in Hosea chapter 6 and chapter 7. I believe there the prophet is talking about false repentance among the Israelites and says to them, you wail on your beds, uh, you know, thrashing about because I've punished you, but you're not really repentant in your hearts. And that seems to be what Ahab's repentance is like here. One writer calls it more of a remorse. Than a repentance. And we know what that's like. Uh, I don't like the consequences that come from my sin, but I don't often get to, uh, or I, I have to make work of getting to true repentance. But what I want us to see here is the fact that Yahweh is looking for any sign of good in Ahab. And while he still meets out justice against Ahab and his house, uh, and in the end, Ahab is still listed as an evil, evil king, one who is set against God. God brings mercy into his life. The fact that he um, will not see this justice meted out in his day um, at just even the slightest sign of repentance in Ahab. And this is so different than than many of the pictures that we can have against God. You know, oftentimes we, we view God as a real harsh critic who's just waiting for a slip up. And see, I told you, here it comes. But Actually, the picture that we get here is one of a God who is looking for any sign of goodness that he can respond to. And remember, over and over and over again, he has pursued Ahab. Brothers and sisters, here, here is is maybe the picture of Yahweh that I'd love for you and for me to go out with. He is inviting you. He's inviting me to come to him repentance acknowledging the ways in which we have pursued ideologies and idols uh, that are, are set up against him but recognizing that he is the true God of the universe and that we are made in his image and that his grace flows even to the hardest of sinners like Ahab now Ahab in the end doesn't surrender, he doesn't yield to God's grace. But I think that's part of the question for us. Will will we yield? Uh, Will it be a glorious surrender? Because we recognize the goodness of God, who knows the victims, who sees the, the nameless, who identifies with them, goes to the cross, takes the justice that we deserve. And gives us the grace, in the end, uh, that that we don't deserve, but that Jesus has won the surplus of righteousness that is ours as we surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't at first see it, but maybe we begin to understand a little bit of the joy of our brother from India, who saw the mercy and the justice of God in 1 Kings 21. May it be so for us. Go in God's peace. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this word. Teach us, we pray, uh, in all your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great day. Blessings to you all.